This is a continuation of the interview from our last episode, so please go back and check out part one if you haven't listened yet. Today, we have Michelle Emanuel joining us. Michelle has over 20 years of experience as a pediatric occupational therapist specializing in the pre-crawling infant. She practices OT in various forms of manual therapy and private practice in Cincinnati, Ohio. She teaches and lectures internationally and developed the tummy time method. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Now, do you, and I don't know um, if there's a certain age that you have, like what you, who you treat personally, um, as far as like neuromuscular re-education, do you ever, ever feel like you've had situations where you need to, well, not need to, sorry to say, do you ever have situations where a tongue tie release then doesn't become necessary because you've been successful with the neuromuscular re-education and you've been able to re, you create new, you know, motor pathways and movement, um, and really that what appeared to be restrictive tissue actually is no longer interfering or is that not really... Well, I've worked with lots of babies that have optimized, but I am a true believer that if there is a restriction that we do need to release that. Mm -hmm. The timing is going to be the essential element. Even one family, I mean, I'm being really extreme right now, but one family, he got released at a year. Is that when everything was for that family appropriate? Now that's an extreme. Usually it's just a week to two, maybe three, but I do believe in releasing tissues. Um, but timing is going to be released. Families sometimes come to me and say, we do not want to do that. We did it with our other child and it was this, that, and the other that happens actually more frequently than you would expect. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't want to release. And I say, fine. And we get the baby doing very, very well. But I'm always even still planting the seed. You know, if something does come up, we've got to keep looking at these bigger developmental milestones, crawling, standing, walking, chewing, swallowing, looking at how they're pooping, if you're seeing the food in it, or if it's well digested, there's a lot to it, right? And then depending upon everything else, we can um, refer them, which my favorite thing to do is refer them to a pediatric dentist as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Or it's, I was, to go a year anyways, but I know that not everybody does that. <laughs> a year? Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, that's yeah, really, that's a good one. I think I, if I remember right, when it, it was, when I was raising my kids, they were little, they're 21, 18 and 16. Now it was three, but I'm so glad to hear one. And now I would say as soon as they pop a tooth or even for some earlier. Yeah. Well, and I know you. most people will go by like two. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, at least the P dentists that I've talked to, they say, no, we really recommend you start at. 12 months, you know, that's because that's generally around the time that they've now got a couple teeth in their mouth. So it's, you know, that's, and just get them familiar with the dentist, let the dentist look in their mouth and take a look at what's going on. But again, it should also be a dentist that is pediatric and that understands POTS and knows, you know, looking for if we have those concerns. 
Yes, and I'm going to assume that on this wonderful podcast that everybody listening here is really focused on talks together and we're banded together and we're, we're a team and we're a community. Everybody listening here and even more people who aren't listening in that we, we really do support each other and we use social media to connect a lot, which is really helpful. Mm-hmm. And I like to try to use it as positively as possible to try to get really good dialogue and information out to people because we need to be continually evolving our thoughts about the, the, yeah. the thoughts and how we're going to address it. And, um, well, I love what you post on like Instagram with your, mm-hmm. your baby Mayo stuff and the different postures and positions that you put babies into so people can clearly see, you know, the guppy and they can see, you know, they can see what you're doing. And obviously that doesn't replace by any means the extensive information that you, they will learn by taking your course. But I think it just gets people's minds kind of flowing and going, well, why does this help the baby? And okay, let me try this with the baby and see what it does or who would I use this with? And, you know, obviously yeah. you include a lot of information with the picture, you know, just throw the picture yeah. out there, you have to put text with it. Um, but I've learned. Sometimes I do. People say it's so cryptic. We don't know. It's like, <laughs> you know what people think for yourselves. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I, I just like, you know, we're, we're all here. We're all pieces of the puzzle. And like my little piece sometimes is to be a provocateur of <laughs> thoughts. And I'm really proud of that, actually, because I like thinking out of the box. And that's what's been able to help me help a lot of babies and families and to be able to expand my mind. At what does it mean to even, you know, work with a baby that's really young. How are we, how can we be therapeutic with that? How can we get better tongue movements out of a baby? And so anyway, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I appreciate that, um, that as well, because, you know, and I'm, I'll get hate mail for this, but I am not the researcher. I'm not the one who goes out there and does the research. And I admittedly don't always read the research unless somebody posts it in a group and I go, oh, this looks interesting. Let me take a look. <laughs> or I have like people on my team who are, I'm like, hey, you guys, you need to keep me like up to date with the latest, and, and, you know, what's coming out in the research, right? You know, whatever. <laughs> um, I keep up with it. And I do, you saw, I ask everybody who's on the podcast to send me like your favorite research article because I'm like, I want to know what other people are seeing and what they're referencing. That's important. But not everything I do in therapy is based on the last research article I read. Yeah. There's just still so much that's undone out there. And what I see clinically with some of these babies and what they respond to and how quickly we can get their tongue moving and we can get them feeding and we can, you know, and uh, everything else development wise with the team appears to be moving forward. Well, great. We're, you know, clinically we're getting results. Nobody's in ha- no, no harm is being done. You know, right. We're, we're only helping them. And, and again, clinical evidence is a form of evidence-based research. I may not be publishing it, but you know, right. you, see these, you see babies responding to some similar things and you start using that in your practice. And so that's kind of where I operate from clinically. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I love it. I love seeing what you're doing on Instagram because I'm like, Oh, I'm going to try that one. Oh, I'm going to get one of those little peanut balls and I'm going to start. Yeah. Doing- and, and that way I also can see, well, what's going on with this baby? Because I'm not an OT and I don't really, you know, sensory, I, I can see when there's a sensory issue. I do not know be, with my infants how to treat that sensory problem in the same way I might be able to work with maybe a toddler or an older child a little bit more easily because there's a little yeah. bit more give and take. It's less passive at that age, you know, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, these infants, they, I go put them on a peanut ball and I go to roll them into like a guppy or I put them on mom's knee and see like if what happens if we tip the head back a little and all of a sudden they're just like flailing and they want to pick their body up and I'm going, Ooh, 
I need to send this baby to an OT or I need it, you know, I need somebody right. who understands cranial nerve dysfunction because I don't have that training and something more is going on here. But I wouldn't yeah. know that necessarily. Yeah. That's well, and that's a great way that we overlap, okay? And so we can help have a peek into each other's world and then say, oh, whoa, my gut feeling here, my professional opinion here is we need to do a little bit more OT. And then you pull an OT on board and then you're all of a sudden working, collaborating together and you learn more and she learns more and the patient benefits. Yes. And nobody is lost here. Everybody has actually gained a whole lot. But I would actually posit that we are considering we are we could be doing harm if we do releases without optimal timing. And I hope we get to that place where we realize that we, we really need to be very careful because what is the definition of harm? Okay. Mm -hmm. And you know, we cannot take a baby who is having other issues that are more pressing. And some people say, well, what about if, you know, the mom's about to lose her milk supply and everything? Well, we protect that, obviously. And you have definitely got to have an IBCLC on your team yeah. and somebody that you work intimately with that you can talk with. And it's really important to be looking at all of that. But no, getting a tongue-tie release for many babies, especially with moderate to significant CD, is not going to help the mom's nipples right away. Correct. Right. Maybe and I want to clarify, like when I said, do no harm, I mean like in my office with what I'm doing, I'm not talking about like, the yeah. physical release, you know, the laser release or the scissor release yeah. or whatever the case may be. Cause I completely agree with you that yes, we can do more harm than good in that case. Yeah. If they're not, if it's not optimal timing wise. And you know, like I've said with some of the kiddos who have more medical things going on that we're still trying to figure out. Sometimes it's like, Oh, well I've been in the Facebook groups and I'm talking to these other parents and I just, let's just go ahead with a tongue tie release. Cause maybe that'll be the fix. And I'm going, there is something more going on here. I'm not ready. You know, I don't think this baby is, this is an optimal timing for this baby. So I love how you say optimal timing. I like that term. Yeah. And it's going to be individualized and it's going to take the baby into account, the diet into account, the family into account, the resources into account. It's going to take a lot of different things, but I do want to say that um, the collaboration with OT in the sensory processing aspect is really big. Yes. This goes into our reflexes, but also how the baby the child will perceive sensory input coming in. That's going to alter all of motor behavior. Mm -hmm. And even if you do exercises to do something, make something better, if the sensory is distorted yes. and that's going to be, a really big problem. And you asked about the research article. So the one I'm really geeked about now that was just published um, in just here in October, 2019, apraxia in children and adults with obstructive sleep apnea syndrome by Dr. Christian Guimano, a legend in the field who recently passed and a couple other people, but showing that um, as the results of this were a subgroup of pediatric and adult sleep disorder breathing patients presented evidence not only of oral facial growth impairment, but also apraxia independent of age and severity of OSA. By three years of age, children should be able to perform requested tongue maneuvers and have oral form recognition. Abnormal praxis was noted independent of age and sleep disorder breathing. So we're, we're connecting these dots and they're saying by three years of age. Well, what comes before that is all of these toddlers and crawlers and pre-crawling babies. And this pre-crawling period is when we have so many different critical windows and periods for leverage points in development. And if we don't go through the developmental sequence in that pre-crawling period, it does create neural gaps. Yeah. And a lot of them are from the tongue and the neck and the posture. 
So um, I think it's really important to focus on the pre-crawling baby. And also there's a whole field of focusing on the pregnant woman and fetal life and movement for both of them and together and birth. Yeah, in the back of my mind, because I actually had a um, shared patient who was working with the Bronson family and she and her two of her sons have been in ALF now to three of them. Um, and so when I got pregnant with my second one, she said, well, you know, you should have your tongue tie released because I understand that it can affect the baby. And I'm thinking like, you know, I'm thinking, okay, yes. But I'm like, I don't know enough about like, is, is it safe to have the laser procedure and a little bit of local anesthesia while I'm this early in pregnancy or it's probably going to already develop by the time that I would be safe <laughs> to have the procedure done. Like, I'm like, you know what? I've already come to terms with the fact that yes, I'm going to get mine done. But for this particular pregnancy that's already underway, I think we're just going to have to release the baby when the baby's born <laughs> and figure things out from there. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so interesting, all the information out there on that topic. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And how the woman is breathing even during pregnancy. Yeah. And so I went and I worked with um, Manny Kim, who does, um, he calls it modern counter strength. It's different than the typical counter strain technique. Okay. And um, he's actually in my dentist's office. And so I'm doing expansion myself now. But I went to him when I found out I was pregnant, actually before I got pregnant, because I had seen him previously. And I said, look, you know, I know next step for me is pregnancy. I want my airway to be maximized to the extent it can be. And so he really, it's funny. I'm like, Carrie, I'm working with kids, teaching them how to belly breathe. And I'm not breathing optimally. Right. Let's all belly breathe. <laughs> you know, he really helped me with, you know, opening up my airway to the extent that we could pre adult expansion, which I had been expanded when I was younger, but things collapsed again because of my oral posture and my tongue tie. And, you know, I had that orthodontic relapse and after we took off the permanent upper and lower retainers and anyways, long story short. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. And I, I have to, part of me thinks that she is doing as well as she's doing now because of the work that I did, despite the fact that I still had a tongue tie and she had a tie and we had things we still had to deal with. I think she's better off than she would have been had I not worked mm -hmm. with him before I even conceived her. So yeah, I mean, it's, it is fascinating because I look at the two children, my, my four-year-old and my 19 month old, and I see the differences I definitely see the differences in the two of them. It's incredible. I mean, that's really good. Are you planning on having more children? I don't know. My husband says no, but we'll see. <laughs> now that this is publicly out there. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have asked you that on this podcast. Then that's okay. I, I, look, I'm an open book. You know, I feel like everybody knows about me and my two kids. I don't talk about my husband as much because he doesn't love being out in the social media light as much. So I'll jokingly post things of him on on Instagram. So he just created an Instagram account recently so he can see what I post. But that's as far as Well, I appreciate you um, putting yourself out there and being a role model and a connector and a collaborator and a community builder because. This is a, a great forum and a platform. I've enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you having me on here and having my little bit of input. You know, it's good. I also wanted to say, you know, I, I mentioned torticollis and maybe head molding earlier. We do want to look at head shape too, based on how the mouth and oral function is going. And not to diagnose, you don't look at somebody with head molding or flattening and say, there's a tongue tie, but you would say we need to look at oral function because if the tongue is putting proper pressures and forces and stresses, good stresses into the cranium and the lips are sealed and the jaw is up and there's normal oral mechanics, 
the head will shape. Even in a back-to-sleep environment, I know we do like to talk about back-to-sleep and the negative, there are definite negative impacts to that, but it's not true that just every kid's head will get flattened. And so it's usually always there at birth, even if you didn't see it as much because the heads are a little bit of a different position, but usually it was present all along, even in the womb. Interesting. I did not know that. Both of my girls, Mary, thankfully have beautiful head shapes, but they also wear tummy sleepers and I could flip them over and they'd flip right back. So I got lucky. Yeah. That, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's the ups and downs of that, yeah. but yeah, it's usually the head shape is all the way from in utero. Now it may become more and more obvious over time because of a lack of tummy time, time spent in positioners and back to sleep and poor oral function. Like just think about it. If a baby can't maintain the seals, which that means there's the anterior seal and there's the posterior seal. You want to close off that oral cavity and be to be able to generate suction because that's where the milk's going to follow that. But if you can't generate the gates of suction, then you, you're not going to be able to get a, a lot of flow, but you're also not going to be pulling on your tissues and your skull base and your throat and your neck and your shoulders and even your whole head. That's, so, that's really interesting. And so with these kiddos that go into like the helmets, mm-hmm. um, you know, we should be doing oral evaluations on all of that. Absolutely. And, and not, I mean, helmets are sometimes really necessary and needed. And I love the doc band actually. I don't love just all helmets, but I love the doc band if necessary. Um, but we don't just put a baby in a helmet and say, okay, well you had this much head molding. And so your treatment is the helmet. You go forward with X, Y, and Z activity, exercise, tummy time, guppy, rolio, hands-on techniques, cranial sacral. You still do all the things and helmet. A lot of times, though, parents feel like, okay, we're going to let go of all that and we're just doing helmeting. Well, and that's been my perception because I've never had a child in one, but that's been my perception even from going into homes where I see siblings in the past who are wearing a helmet and I was working with the sibling and you know like an older sibling for example and the parent going oh yeah we just started our helmet and they said it should be off in six weeks or oh we started our helmet and we've got three months in this thing or oh and you know i'm like oh okay and i'm like they've explained some things to me but you know from my understanding many of them were not instructed to do other things right so that's that's very fascinating right and you know the head shaping is a variability too because some babies have very thin heads and other babies have thicker heads, more bone density. Everybody is so different. So that's another thing to take into effect and account when you're looking at people is the variability and differences in the tissues and the responses, etc. But it's all of posture too, because the first part of postural development is head control. That's going to be very intense and just connected to tongue function in general. So it's the baby who has the head tip back, you know, into a little bit of extension or the baby who has that head forward posture. It's just that the baby's not right in the middle because it's very hard without good tongue function to do, to maintain midline. Mm-hmm. And babies really should develop head control by eight weeks. Yeah. Well, and my babies always had really good head control at two days and everybody was very impressed. And I was like, that is not a good thing, people. <laughs> They're right. really tight. That's not good. <laughs> 
exactly. So a baby shouldn't have head control at birth. And so if you notice a baby, there's two different things. A baby who has really, really good head control yeah, or a baby who had terrible head control, like was really a floppy baby. Both yeah. of those babies are babies with oral dysfunction and or maybe tethered oral tissues. Yeah. But also to remember tethered oral tissues are not like a thing that we can correct. This is an embryologic, developmental, maturational, body shape changing, body wide event that has ramifications in our central and peripheral nervous system in the tissues of our body and in the very neural loops of our movement. It's yeah. not just a tiny string under the tongue, but it's, it's a lot more than that. And we got to treat it like that if we really want to see good outcomes and we want for the long term. And also too, one of my pet peeves right now is people saying, yeah, let's get it taken care of now because we don't want to have to deal with it later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. irresponsible at this point for those of us who have been in the tongue tie world long enough to know that, no, it's going to creep up. It's going to come with advancements and regressions. It's going to look, you know, it's going to have periods of looking worse and it's going to have periods of looking better. Growth and development are going to affect it. How the jaw does grow, how the palate does or doesn't develop, how the airway develops is all going to make a change um, and, and a difference. So we can't just say, let's do, do this. And even the most responsible care at this point with pre-crawling babies is check in with an oral professional every three or four months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to make sure. it's just a, hey, we're fine. We're not fine. We have questions. Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps one of the things we could do better is come up with lists of things like what would you want to see parents when you might need to have a follow-up. Mm -hmm. like one of the bigger ones is looking at their poo and seeing what they're digesting or not. If they're chewing their food. If, yeah. You know, how they're sleeping. Is their mouth closed? Yeah, that's, that's where, you know, I've, it's interesting because my first one, her constipation went away literally within 24 hours of having her tongue tie release. And I was like, mind blown. I was like, I think I've heard this. I know I'm sure there's no research to support this, but has anybody else experienced this? Because that was, I was not expecting that, but I'm like, holy cow, how tight her entire system might, must be for that to have finally been like, okay, now we can function properly. <laughs> I yeah. mean, Incred and everyone's going, are you sure it wasn't the opposite? Because, you know, anesthesia usually constipates you. And I'm like, well, she had like local. So it was very little. She said, like I said, it wasn't like general anesthesia. So I'm like, nope, nope, it's gone. And it's, she's been able to maintain, you know, not, of course, it's not perfect. Like we still have right. to make for greens to keep her regular because she's still a very picky eater and we're working on her oral motor skills. And nice. she's in an ALF. So we're expanding her. And you know, she just turned four and she's had the ALF for like a uh, Think we're going into our we are a month and a half in maybe at this point almost two months nice yeah so you know thankfully dr tipograph um is local to me and she um i think she's in the i don't know if you know her are you do you do the bronson of well yeah i know the bronsons and they're great i yeah. was at their conference in dc yeah. earlier yeah. Mm -hmm. and i yeah. spoke yeah. mm-hmm it was a fabulous conference. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. I was there. You were there. That's right. Wasn't it fabulous? It was. Like, it was great. It was, it was really great. And, you know, it's just looking at things from a holistic and whole health perspective and how these things affect you over the lifespan. And not just looking at, like, everything we're talking about, but how nutrition impacts everything, how digestion. I mean, it's just 
everybody yeah. looks at all of these areas as separate entities when we all need to be looking at them as one and the same. Like they are, it's, right. we are human bodies that function together. Just like right. I teach people that you cannot separate the, the motor and the sensory systems. They work together, even though they're taught yes. that way sometimes. You can't treat them separately. Yeah. You really can't. And that's why the team approach is necessary to bring right. in people who specialize in both areas so that we're really you know, maximizing that child's potential and helping them the best we can. And, you know, but I think it was just so fascinating and, and she's doing, um, she's part of the residency that he does. And so Thanks. it's very cool. Yeah. Very cool to have a child in an elf who, you know, we're kind of like experimenting with her a little bit to see like, well, what can we do? Can we shrink those tonsils? Cause they're big and she doesn't sleep with her mouth open unless she's sick and she, you know, but her behavior makes me wonder how she's breathing and we haven't done a sleep study because she's you know we just put her in the alpha and we did do the scans and we were taking pictures and we're kind of tracking everything but you know that's it's like next on my my list <laughs> well it's so well at icap in july like last year i had when i talked i said the model of care has gone from triangles to octagons and the triangle was the release provider the IBCLC lactation support and the body worker. And that was like the standard of care several, several years ago. But we've seen how we now need to add these other discipline in so that we went from triangles to octagons. So there was eight categories that I went over and nutrition was one that I'd added because it is huge. Now that's way beyond my scope, but I just would say encourage anybody who's listening who knows a nutritionist who's into it to get involved in this area because we need a lot of guidance down to moms that are breastfeeding and want to change their diet and need support and to children needing different uh, nutrition consults etc and then the sensitivities and etc so it's really important with nutrition but I was going to say too with your daughter you had an immediate now we'll take those miracles right when we get the release we'll take because that does happen like there usually is something that will radically change for everybody right away it's just not are we noticing it or not and so you noticed it and, but also this is how tongue tie is so confusing because you can't then expect that to happen for another person. So like someone else who has a constipated or really, you know, slow gastric motility baby can't just go get released to get your daughter's release results. Right. Right. Well, and, that's, that yeah, and I think that's important too, because I even saw they were different ages, but I saw different results. So she, you know, yeah. she immediately that, that worked for her and we saw some other improvements, but then my youngest one was five days old. The latch immediately improved. But like I talked about with her motor development, she still wasn't paid. We still had things to work on. And so, yeah. you know, it's not a one and done. Right. There's a team approach. And I think that, yes, we need to develop some kind of a protocol or something that we can put out into the public that parents can use almost as their own type of a screener of here are the developmental milestones my child who is tongue tied should be hitting. And if they're not hitting these by this point, I need to take them back or just kind of because, you know, I think we can say all day long, hey, follow up every three to four months with your provider. But is, are busy parents with, you know, family, are they really right. I don't know. So, you know, yeah, then it kind of falls back on us. Well, how else can we educate them? How else can we get this information in front of them? And so I love the idea of creating something that says, hey, by this age, we expect to see this. And if you don't see this, please follow up with, you know, take your child in yeah. for an appointment. And something really simple. It could be even, you know, simple, simple, simple stuff. Like, do you notice that your child, I mean, you also too, you know, take 30 seconds to observe your child chewing today. Cause a lot of times, I just remember back, I, I didn't do that so much and I'm an oral motor person and have been for a really long time. Yeah. Um, just to observe and see if you think, does it look 
like things are going well? Are they chewing on both sides of their mouth and things like that? Now that's creating projects for other people. So let's get those people excited and get those done. <laughs> well, I mean, it's right. funny because that's part of my eval. And I always tell parents, I'm like, you know, bring their favorite foods, but bring some of these other things too. And let's see what they'll eat in front of me. I'm like, cause I will tell you watching them chew gives me way more information yes. than having them imitate me in a mirror doing this, that, and the other. I said, because that's, that's functional. And now I can see, okay, this is what's impaired. Now we can dive a bit deeper and figure out why we're, we're getting, you know, why this level of impairment is showing when they chew and why they're only chewing single-sided, why they're not lateralizing the food. It's great, you know, okay, great. I can see that the tongue is not lateralizing, but where is that breaking down functionally beyond just yeah. not being able to move your tongue left and right? Anyway, so, you know, you get it. I know you get it, but yeah. So oh, I love that, yeah. And, and it's funny because I ask parents, I'm like, well, and I've even asked adults, well, hey, do you know if you chew on one side of your mouth? And they're like, I have no clue. They have no idea sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and I love working with kids with autism because a lot of them, when they get to like the eight, nine-year-old and up age, they know. They can tell me. And they can <laughs> tell me. they're like, oh yeah, I chew over here. And when I do this, I do and, and my tongue is stuck down. And like, they're, it's so incredible. And obviously this is not every child, but like- right. That's been my experience, especially with yeah. the last couple. They are so in tune with their with what's going on. They're so hyper aware for various reasons that it's they give me really great information. And I'm like, okay, well, I can help you with that. Uh, but yes, watching the feeding is like, how do you do an oral motor evaluation without seeing how function is impaired? So that is yeah. such a crucial piece of it. I love that you said that. Right. Well, that's why a lot of um, speech therapists and occupational therapists have spent many years learning or the field of oral motor feeding yes. and that has given us a lot of information mm -hmm. and you know shout out to people like deborah beckman and people who have gone before us with oral motor programs that teach us about how to work with the mouth that's another thing though it didn't teach us everything it's not the whole thing and a lot of those models that we learned are aimed at kids with intense diagnoses, cerebral palsy, um, oral motor feeding disorders of, you know, that require G-tubes or me high medical acuity and other types of things. We're really seeing in this tethered oral tissue population, typically developing babies and children who are not in fact being identified by their pediatrician or their, their family care provider as having a big problem and not having a diagnosis really to work with. And I would say, I see a lot of babies and most of them, I would say not nine and a half out of 10 have a head turning preference to one side and could probably get a diagnosis of torticollis if we weren't working on it, but don't have one. And that's fine with me. I'm not all about diagnosing babies because we work through that really, really quickly if we get on it right. Right. But we're working with that. And so oral motor feeding therapy it's helpful for these babies, but we needed a different lens. And this is where baby Mayo and toddler Mayo are coming into play. And where we can now take the lens and the scope uh, and the, the idea of myofunctional therapy, which is exercise to the lips and the cheeks and the tongue and the jaw, proper swallow and oral rest, optimal oral rest posture, and infuse that over our knowledge of oral motor feeding and posture and movement in general so that we can have a more expansive scope about how to address, how to assess, how to treat, how to make changes in babies that we're working with, mm -hmm. you know, in families. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up. I know it's a very curious and interesting topic that's uh, 
<laughs> some people feel very strongly one way or the other about it. But you know, like you said, it's, it's interesting because I was that feeding therapist before I took my Mayo course mm -hmm. and got my certification in orofacial myology. And doing that, I feel like has made me a better therapist because like you said, I have my Mayo eyes now. I look at things through a different lens. Yes. And I even look at my babies through a different lens. And yes. it helped me connect with other providers in my area where we created these teams. And so regardless of the age of the child, we're still looking to optimize development and optimize their feeding skills and optimize their function and optimize their posture and their, you know, physical, the whole body. So, you know, I'm not, you know, that's obviously not all inclusive, but Yes, you know, obviously when you're work when I'm working with a child doing myofunctional therapy for and up, that's gonna look very different because these kids yeah. can sit across the table from me or sit on the floor and play a game with me and copy me and imitate and do things in the in a more traditional way that they train myo type of way versus, you know, these little ones where we actually break down the meaning of myo and functional and what we're our end goal is, you know. Right. There are different ways we can work at it. And I think it's what some speech pathologists will just say, oh, well, that's traditional feeding therapy. Well, maybe for some people who are very advanced in that space in the field, but not what's being taught in some no. this day. That is, they're teaching traditional feeding therapy, but not from a myo functional perspective right. all the time. So, you know, and I think, again, that's also why it was so easy for me to jump into it because it gave me this whole different lens and perspective. And I went, whoa, <laughs> hold up. Right. What have I been missing? And holy cow, I have this whole new way of looking at and treating these cases and helping these children move faster, move faster to the end goal and get them functioning faster. Right. Um, well, and that's a, that's a good point. You know, myofunctional therapy is, has been around for a long time. You know, it was yes. what about a hundred or so years ago and has always been mingling around in the dental profession, right? Because obviously the mouth, Etc. There have been other people that have used it along the way, um, but there's also the the look of it as it's not one thing in itself. Because if it's just exercise to the lips, cheeks, and chunk, that's just kind of microscopic too. What good mild programs have done, like AOMT, they're pulling in breathing, posture, sleep, airway, and you know, and making it comprehensive. Mm -hmm and building up the multidisciplinary aspects around these myofunctional therapy principles. So it goes way beyond yeah. just exercise and whether it's active or not, or whether babies can do, and by the way, yes, babies do active movement. They do active volitional movements yeah. and it's very purposeful. But we also, one of my big uh, pedestals is talking about how babies are human beings and we need to consider them as human beings and just because they don't can't follow commands through your voice necessarily although they will comply very nicely if you speak in good with good vocal prosody and you're very alluring and you're a super attractor they'll do whatever you want okay but you have to take them into account just because they have a lot of reflexes or they don't have as much volitional movement not to just put them aside and say no, we don't want you to benefit from these concepts or principles. We just want you to go ahead and develop these yeah. problems. Because some people would say, like, you know, it's preventing OMDs starting early. No, it's not preventing. They're already there. If you're a person with an OMD, you have it. You had it. Yeah, interesting. That's, yes, that's a different perspective. I do like that, and it is very true. And I also love what you said about the little ones copying because, and I have people, I was presenting at a myofunctional um, therapy symposium 
and actually brought my two month old with me, the one who had been released five, at five days old. And I have witnesses in this space who saw her imitating tongue clicks while she was laying on the table and I'm clicking my tongue and she's clicking back at two and a half months. And I was like, I, I'm not making this up guys. You guys see this, you're my witnesses. Like this baby can imitate tongue clicks. And I just thought- Every day, all day long in my office. Yeah, it's playful. And when you do these playful things, they imitate them. And so it's, it yes. may not be what people would traditionally consider true therapy, but what am I trying to get my four-year-olds and my five-year-olds to do? I'm trying to get them to click and suction their tongue. How is this any different? You know, it's, it's like super functional and it helped her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We need to treat babies like human beings and like they're capable. And see, that's why I focus on the pre-crawling baby. You asked me who my yeah. clientele was, is the pre-crawling baby, because yeah. a lot of people will just scan over it or you just want them to get through it you just want them you know let's just figure it out when they're having more trouble whereas I'm like no this is the time and this is the place and this is how we can do it and very easily but yeah. um, the longer we wait the more uh, you know patterns they develop that are not helping yes. the cause and that we then have to in a sense undo before we can redo and help them create new neuromuscular you know new motor patterns and so yeah, no, I, I definitely we also have a lot of really exciting things because there's been a lot of people and that have been very busy, especially um, trying to connect and collaborate and create communities around the globe of myofunctional therapy societies, of which there are about 21 already developed. There's a new thing developed, which is the um, International Research Network for Oral Facial Myofunctional Therapy. And there's some big movement happening with doing large centers studied trials. And there's, especially in Singapore, they're really interested in looking and getting this going with infants. So we're going to be working with them and moving forward with uh, optimizing health for babies and families, really easy, simple things we can do. And also looking at optimal timing of release and what's best. And that means as soon as possible, but also within the time period, you know, that they need. So there's a lot of exciting things that are happening. I hope some of you are coming to um, some of the conferences because this is where we get together at big conferences. It doesn't matter which ones. The networking, the talking, the excitement, the um, things. So get plugged in, not just online, but come in person and meet with us and talk with people and get together. This has been so much fun. No, thank you so much, Michelle. So okay. if you want to find Michelle, you can find her at tummy, tummytimemethod.com, right? And yes. uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well as the research article with apraxia and obstructive sleep apnea that you referenced because I did see you yes. post it on Facebook. I think you posted it on Facebook or somebody yes. recently and I was like, yes. oh, and I started actually reading that one. So I was like, this is fascinating to me. And I don't always do that when I see something posted. I just want yeah. to um, I admit and it's hot brand new research helping yeah. us look at this yeah. and apraxia not everybody understands that but for yeah. those of you who do this is big I was news. like holy holy this is like whoa <laughs> so yeah well thank yeah. you I have to hop You're off welcome. but I appreciate you this was fantastic and maybe we'll do this again soon thank you all right bye Michelle bye Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan, and you can head
head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.